Now, we shall read just the first few verses of Mark uh, chapter 14, the 14th chapter of um, Mark's Gospel, from verse 1. I'm going to read it in the Standard Version, the American Standard Version. Now, after two days was the feast of the Passover and the unleavened bread. And the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might take him with subtlety and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest haply there shall be a tumult of the people. And while he was in Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at meat, there came a woman having an alabaster cruise of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she brake the cruise and poured it over his head. But there were some that had indignation among themselves, saying, To what purpose hath this waste of the ointment been made? For this ointment might have been sold for above three hundred shillings and given to the poor. And they murmured against her. But Jesus said, Let her alone. Why trouble ye her? She hath wrought a good work on me. For ye have the poor always with you, and whensoever ye will ye can do them good, but me ye have not always. She hath done what she could. She hath anointed my body beforehand for the burying. And verily I say unto you, wheresoever the gospel shall be preached throughout the whole world, that also which this woman hath done shall be spoken of for a memorial of her. Then Judas Iscariot, he that was one of the twelve, went away unto the chief priests that he might deliver him unto them. And they, when they heard it, were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought how he might conveniently deliver him unto them. This evening we come now to take up <coughs> once more our studies in the Gospel according to Mark. We are on this third <coughs> main division of the Gospel according to Mark, the servant of the Lord, obedient <coughs> pardon, unto death. <coughs> and we have already covered quite an amount, as you can see, the triumphal entry of the servant of the Lord into Jerusalem, the rejection of the servant of the Lord by the Jewish people and God's rejection of them, the final public manifestation in glory of the rejected servant of the Lord. Tonight we come to this fourth subdivision, which I have entitled The Threshold of His Supreme Service and Work. 
the threshold of his supreme service and work. We have now entered the last two uh, days of Christ's earthly life. If you read the very first verse, it was now two days before the Passover. We have in fact entered into the last two days of the Lord's short earthly life. We are on the threshold of his supreme work, the service which he came to render. It's interesting to note that in this section, which I have entitled the threshold of his supreme service, we have two suppers. We shall only be dealing with one tonight. The first, the Lord was guest. He was there as guest. The second, he was there as host. In the first, we see the kind of service God looks for in a disciple and in the second we see that kind of service perfectly revealed in the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Now I had hoped to be able this evening to cover both uh, these uh, suppers, in fact I had hoped to be able to cover all 31 verses of this um, uh, of this section but in fact we are only going to cover the first 11 verses the first 11 verses and I have entitled these verses service true and false service true and false Mark intentionally so it seems tells the story of Mary's anointing of Christ at Bethany against a very dark and bleak background indeed. John tells us explicitly in John chapter 12 and verses 1 and the immediately following verses that this incident took place six days before the Passover. Now, of course, those who like to believe that the Bible is inconsistent and is filled with contradictions often hurl this kind of thing at us. They say, John says it was six days before. Mark says it was two days before. Mark says nothing of the kind, but we shall see that in a moment. Mark intentionally tells the story of Mary's anointing here. As I have said, John has told us that in fact it wasn't two days before the Passover but six days before the Passover before Christ's death and he identifies the woman with Mary of Bethany Mark deliberately inserts the story uh, here in order to make a very sharp comparison he begins with the chief priests and the doctors of the law, the scribes, in verses 1 and 2, if you will keep this chapter open in front of you. Then he breaks off and inserts the story of Mary's anointing of Christ from verses 3 to 9. He then records Judas's treachery in verses 10 and 11. Now you might have thought, 
that Judas's treachery ought to follow straight on, as indeed it should. Uh, it is, of course, true uh, that um, Judas's the final impulse for Judas's betrayal of Christ was Mary's anointing of Christ. You will see in your Revised Standard Version. Uh, it says in the and standard version, it says, then Judas went out. Um, uh, in other words, it was the last straw for Judas. Not so much um, Mary's anointing of Christ as Christ's, uh, Christ's reaction to their criticism. Now, if you look at it very carefully, we shall see it all as we look at these verses later. Um, it is quite clear that Judas deeply resented the Lord's rebuke. And so this incident became the immediate impulse for his betrayal of the Lord Jesus Christ. How this has happened again and again in church history. Some incident has finally drawn bitterness in human hearts, all as it were together, channeled it become the immediate impulse for doing something that has been deeply regretted sometimes later. I have therefore entitled this little section of 11 verses Service True and False With consummate skill Mark contrasts the service of a simple disciple a woman, let it be said with the religious establishment first, then with that service of Judas Iscariot, and indeed of the other eleven. We had this amazing co comparison between the service of those who represent God in a nation and one of the twelve apostles, and indeed the other disciples, the other eleven, and this single disciple, this woman. He does it, I say, with consummate skill. Perception over against blindness and prejudice. Devotion over against cruel hatred. Loyal faithfulness over against treachery and self-preservation brokenness over against pride and covetousness avarice the heart over against the outward appearance it would not be right for us to go beyond these 11 verses this evening because to me here in these few verses we have some of the most distilled as it were the great lesson of the gospel according to Mark. First, let's look at false service. Verses 1 and 2 and 10 and 11. False service. The chief priests we read in verse 1, the chief priests and scribes, or scribes I don't think means too much to us today. Doctors of the law might be much, uh, uh, mean much more to us, more than lawyers. They were really theologians those who knew the intricacies and complexities of the Lord spent their whole life immersed in the study of it 
chief priests, those who represented the leadership spiritually and religiously of the people of God, and the scribes, those who represented the interpretation, as it were, and uh, exposition of the word and ways of God. The establishment were resolved, the religious establishment, were resolved now in their implacable hatred of Christ to do away with him once and for all. That is what we find in this first verse. The events of the previous week which we have covered were the last straw for them. What had happened in the triumphal entry into Jerusalem? Children singing Hosanna to the son of David. Stirrings all over the city. It was too much for them. Their confrontation with Christ and what he'd said, your house is left unto you desolate. Some of the parables he'd told, it was too much for them. It was the last straw. And in their venomous hatred and prejudice, they resolved now to liquidate him. Get rid of him by any means. They decided not to do anything in the Passover holiday for fear of the people. Now this is a very interesting point. Many people seem to think the whole Jewish nation were dead set against Christ. When we read into the word of God more deeply, we discover this is not true. The establishment was dead set against him, violently antagonistic. But it's quite clear that the ordinary people were very much for him. Even the establishment, the leaders of the nation, couldn't take Christ at the Passover holiday because they were frightened to death of a popular uprising in favor of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was, in fact, the quite unexpected offer of Judas which caused them to change their minds and act immediately. We read that in verses 10 and 11. That's why, of course, they decided to take Christ at the Passover. His treachery simplified matters considerably. He could lead them to some point secluded and quiet where Christ could be apprehended and arrested before the people even knew about it. So now the whole thing was sewn up. They knew what they were going to do, and Judas was waiting for an opportunity. In other words, to wait for the time where he knew Christ would be in a place that was quiet and secluded, where the officers could go and arrest him. We are thus confronted by a kind of service which has all the trappings, all the phraseology, all the titles and positions, but which is essentially false. It takes the name of God, the word of God, the things of God as of right. Yet it is in fact nothing more than a form of godliness which denies the very power. The chief priests and scribes were the very leaders and interpreters of the service of God in all things. They were the final body to which anyone could appeal in anything spiritual 
in the service and work of God. They were the leading and responsible servants of the Lord, trained, qualified, recognized. Judas Iscariot's case is even more remarkable. He was one of the twelve apostles. Outwardly at least, he had as close an association with Christ as it was possible to have. He had been with Christ intimately for three whole years, shared in the work, watched the mighty acts, heard the words of life. Indeed, on more than one occasion, he had been sent forth in the name of Christ to do mighty things himself and had been very, very successful. Furthermore, he had been the one into whose hands the keeping of the money for the twelve had been entrusted. No small responsibility amongst them. You don't normally choose a swindler for a treasurer. At least we haven't here. <laughs> normally, you, you select people who are above reproach, who have ability. Obviously, they must be able to add up. They must be able to do their sums right. They must be able to somehow add everything up and all the rest of it. They must have some ability. Judas probably had great ability in a number of directions. He probably had commercial shrewdness. He probably was an able administrator. In many, many ways, as Dr. Campbell Morgan has said, a man's greatest qualities have within them often the seeds of his most terrible downfall. Thus, by association, title, position, and work, if anyone was entitled to be called a servant of the Lord, Judas Iscariot was. Yet in spite of all this, <clears throat> his service and that of the chief priests and scribes was fundamentally false. All that we've seen to be true, to be the true nature of service in the previous chapters of Mark's Gospel are here, is here contradicted. The basis of their service was not selfless sacrifice toward God and man, there was in it no losing of one's life, no giving up of all right to oneself, no leaving behind of self, no pouring out of one's life, no committal to the death of the cross. The energy of their service was self-seeking, self-aggrandizement, self-glory, and self-preservation. The poison of an insatiable self-life was in it. And therefore, when the crisis came, it could only manifest itself in the way it did. Now, take to heart my words. If there is in any one of us a self-life, 
undealt with, when the crisis comes, it can only manifest itself in the way it has to. No sudden heroism, no sudden laying down of one's life, no sudden pouring out of everything for Christ in a moment of crisis. Here is the solemn fact of the matter. The names, the titles, the position, even the association may be there. All may appear to be the work and the service of God. But behind that thin veneer, there was nothing less than a satanically allied and energized flesh life. Murderous and implacable hatred and jealousy under the name of God. Diabolical shrewdness and cunning. Supposedly wisdom, divine wisdom. Treachery, the love of money, hard-headed avarice. To put it in a phrase, the serpent was there and not the lamb. The very men representing God in a nation, representing his character, his word, his work, his ways, meeting together to plan the murder of one who was not only innocent, but who perfectly expressed the love and mind of God in all his ways, through all his days. Meeting, furthermore, just at the time, with great irony, that all the leaven in their homes, in their houses, in their businesses, was being methodically swept out and destroyed. All that symbolized sin and corruption was being got out of their homes, out of their houses, out of their offices. Whilst these men were meeting to plan murder. You see that in verse 1. Unleavened bread. Two days to it. Those two days were spent in getting rid of all leaven in your home. You went through with a candle, with a lamp. It was a ritual to find every bit of leaven in the whole house. Dump it all outside and get rid of it. Men who decided, listen to this, not to murder Christ at the festival, Passover time, because of its sacredness, but because they were afraid of a popular riot. Such were these servants of the Lord. Men who could pay money out of the Lord's treasury to perpetrate evil. But that's not all. We have an apostle, privileged, honored, so close to Christ, as close to Christ, as outwardly it was possible to be, selling God's unspeakable gift for 30 pieces of silver. The price put on a gored and maimed slave by the law of God in Deuteronomy. To such depths of depravity, 
the uncrucified self-life, once allied and possessed by Satan, in any one of us can stoop. I say it again, in any one of us can stoop. Church history gives us plenty of evidence for this. The Inquisition, the investigation of the Lollards and their burning, the Scottish Covenanters, what we did to the Quakers, much more. Church history is filled with this kind of servant of the Lord. The name of God, the title, of titles, positions, colours the right way round or the wrong way round as you will prefer to look at it. And behind it all, satanic hatred and venom. Things done in the name of Christ supposedly for the sake of the gospel, which are nothing but from the pit itself. Such service have filled, has filled the pages of church history, nor, may I say prophetically, is the story by any means over. When we've got a dean of St. Paul telling us that he is deeply moved by the cast of hair coming and performing at communion when we have the church times telling us that the little red school book is to be commended the church times when we have men theologians telling us that Jesus Christ was a homosexual when we have a man like the leader of the Chinese YMCA, the chief inquisitor of faithful men and women of God in China, we know the story is not over. We shall see much, much more of it in the days to come. This is not just history. It is filled with lesson for us. How well then we begin to understand the solemn reiteration again and again in one way or another, another that if we would follow Christ we must deny ourselves and take up the cross. We must lose our lives if we would find them. that these men were unsaved men, men who did not know God, unregenerate men, strangers to the love and mercy of God, even if they took all the names and titles, we realize. The Judas was the son of perdition, but the Lord Jesus called him a demon. We know. But even for those who are saved, by the grace of God, born of the Spirit of God, there is here a vital lesson. We cannot follow Christ. We cannot serve God without the cross. The gracious ministry of the Holy Spirit 
will ever bring us through Calvary to our Pentecost. A hand, a foot, an eye may have to be forfeited if that self-centeredness in us is going to be dealt with. But that is the only way the service of any one of us who are the saved people of God can be made safe. I have been in Christian work now long enough in my short life to have seen that to be saved is no qualification for the enemy not using you. I have seen saved people do diabolical things. I have heard diabolical wickednesses come out of saved mouths. The tongue is an evil which no man can tame, set on fire by hell. That James said to believers. Brethren, he said, if any man can tame his tongue, that man is perfect. So take note, everyone who would serve God must be salted with fire. Now all this, for those of you who've been in these studies, you know we're going back to previous chapters. A hand, a foot, an eye plucked out, rather than stumble anyone. Every sacrifice salted by fire. Have salt in yourselves. Be at peace with one another. Ah, is this not all somehow got so much to say about this matter? False service. God preserve us from false service. It's not only that unsaved men can take the name of God and give themselves titles and positions and all the rest of it, but we believers can render false service because we are not prepared for the cross and the spirit. Let's move on from that dark and unhappy picture to the positive side, true service. Verses 3 to 9. Verses 3 to 9. Mark then tells the story of a disciple, not one of the twelve apostles, not a great name, but a simple follower of Christ, a woman, Mary of Bethany. Verse 3, and you must compare that with um, John chapter 12, 1 to 3, see that it is Mary if you want to. There are few stories, I suppose, in the whole Bible more touching or more beautiful than the story recorded here. The story is told simply and graphically. Now there are one or two things we need to remember for our understanding of this story. We need to remember that this alabaster cruise of Spikenard would have been the most precious thing Mary possessed, representing her capital or her savings, her nest egg if you like. This alabaster cruise you will see in the New English Bible is a bottle. In the authorized version is a box. 
In the Revised Standard Version is a jar. In the Living Bible, I think all Phillips, it's a flask. And in the New American Standard Bible, it's a vial. You might well wonder how we got quite so many descriptions of this one thing. But the Greek simply means an alabaster. <laughs> As Brother Shaw said to me, like the way we speak of a tin or a glass. You see? We don't really know quite what it was. It was an alabaster vessel of some kind. Fragile, in which this beautiful ointment was kept. Now, this ointment represented nearly a year's wages. Now, let me get, try to get this home. Um, most people seem to think that what Mary did, oh, of course, they think it was absolutely wonderful, marvellous, but what Mary did was she took her bottle of eau de cologne, given her at some festival, uh, a year or two before, uh, a sort of the real thing was that she broke it, which seemed a rather strange thing to do, and then poured the contents over the master. Some kind of precious perfume. There's nothing of the kind. Others of us, of course, have worked it out. All, all, these, all these various ver translations are dated by the way they tend to give you the... Uh, the uh, value in, in the, at the time the translation was made. We, we tried to work it out as something like about 45, 50 pounds. But you know, such uh, an understanding leaves us cold. We don't get the picture. The Judas, who was the treasurer, according to John, in John chapter 12, said this could have been sold for more than 300 denarii. Now we know in Matthew 20 and verse 2 that one denarius was a day's basic wage. So we nearly have a year's wages or income representative. Now I understand from those who are in the world well and truly um, that a year's basic income in this country is at least a thousand pounds. This means that Mary took something approaching a thousand pounds and lavished it on Christ. Spikenard is a very fragrant oil and was probably imported in biblical days from India, where it is still used today for the hair. Uh, hence its inflated value. It was highly prized and sought after. In many homes it represented an investment, because if they'd any family wanted to, they could take that precious alabaster cruise with its contents and could sell it knowing full well they'd always get the market value. There would be no devaluation on that kind of thing. So it was a very highly prized thing. It represented often capital in a home, the savings in a home. It was used as a perfume. It was used for hair, both ladies and gentlemen. 
It was used for anointing the head, a very common thing in the East when a guest came. And amongst Hebrews and Romans, it was used for the burial of the dead. Mary took the, mo the most precious thing she possessed and lavished it all upon Christ with no regard whatsoever for its value. Deliberately, she broke the frail beauty of the alabaster and allowed the oil to pour over his head and his feet. Did she really understand what she was doing? Was it some sudden impulse of devotion, of love which prompted her, the meaning of which went far beyond her understanding? Some action which was inspired by her love for Christ, which was prophetic in its significance, although she did not realize it. Or did she alone, of all the disciples, by revelation, just as God had revealed to Simon Bar-Jonah who Christ was, by revelation, alone of all the disciples, did she perceive, if only dimly, that Christ had, what Christ had so repeatedly affirmed in these last months, that he was to die and rise again. Had she alone, of all those disciples detected by God's grace, the path the Master was going to tread, the anguish, the sorrow, the suffering, the death that was his before another week dawned? And had she revealing and expressing that understanding in her act sought to comfort him and strengthen him? We cannot with any certainty say. What we do know is this. Of all the disciples, including the twelve apostles, she was the only one to enter into the fellowship of his sufferings. She has done a beautiful thing to me, says the Lord in the words of the Revised Standard Version. She hath wrought a good work on me, the Lord said in the words of the Revised Version and the Authorized Version. She has anointed my body beforehand for Betty. To me, the words of the Lord Jesus seem to imply that Mary did understand something. I cannot be dogmatic, but that's my feeling about it. This Mary, I would remind you, was the one who sat at Jesus' feet of whom he said that she had chosen the better part which would never be taken away from her. She was a meditative and reflective person.
that we must bear in mind. Moreover, Mark alone records a phrase which to me supplies the, 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 the vital clue, perhaps almost the missing link. She has done what she could. Of all the gospel writers, he is the only one who records that phrase. She has done what she could. If it was just some impulse of love, if it was just some lavishing of perfume upon him, why say that? Surely these words in verse 8, or is it 5? Verse 8, are meaningless unless they mean that Mary saw something of the path ahead of Christ and in spite of limited understanding did what she could to express her fellowship with him. What else do these words mean? I would be very interested if anyone can tell me. She has done what she could. Do they not mean that somehow she alone perceived by the Holy Spirit something of what was ahead of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the fact that he said, she has done this before my burying. The Lord was saying to Mary, I know you understand. I don't know, but for Christ it was the only way of light in an ever-darkening sky. And look up, sisters. That one way of light was supplied by Mary. No one else. In the days that were ahead, the darkness of Gethsemane, darkness of the cross, the one ray of light in it all, was Mary of Bethany. Now here we have another lesson. Do we ever realize the full significance of true service poured out for him? Just supposing Mary didn't understand, just supposing Mary saw nothing, do we ever realize the full significance of service? I doubt it. Do we ever realize the joy and satisfaction of God when we walk the same path which Christ trod? Someone going through some great problem, some great issue comes up and they lay down their lives and pour out their their, their life in a new way for Christ. It seems so wasted, so derided, so misunderstood by others. Its full significance is only understood in heaven. We would all like the platform. We would all like to be in front of everyone where at least people can sympathize and be sorry. But that is not service. Service is the hidden history of the human heart with God. Where 
battles are fought out and won by the grace of God. Where issues are settled in the dark bleakness of our own circumstances. With no help from anyone. The full significance of such service, of such decisions, I don't think we shall ever understand till we are in eternity. And there we shall realize that some of those seemingly petty issues settled were universal in their significance. Now, of course, some people will say, oh, dear, 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 that really is being carried away to say something like that. I don't think so. Who would have thought that someone like Mary of Bethany would be remembered alongside the gospel for all time? Why not take a Peter? Why not take a Paul? Why not take a John? These are great men, men of great stature. Why take a simple little soul like Mary of Bethany? She comes onto the pages and she goes off the pages. She was no flaming evangelist, no great Bible teacher, no Mrs. Penn Lewis. What happened to Mary? We don't even know what happened to her. But her name will last so long as the gospel is preached and beyond. Why did Mary understand the significance? I don't think so. If she'd thought, of course, if I do this, my name will be linked with the gospel, the whole of the age. So I'll do it. But that's how you and I reckon. Oh, we think. I'll do this, because there'll be a, some kind of reward, or there'll be something. She didn't. It was the spontaneous act of love, of devotion, of faithfulness, of loyalty. And God saw it and understood. Certainly, we must say, in her action, Mary revealed the character and nature of service, which so far only Christ had revealed. Perhaps the nearest we ever got to it was another soul, another lady, the widow with her two mites. The very thing which, by life, by action, by lip, Christ had sought to reveal, Mary had expressed in an act deeper than words. Spiritual understanding and perception, heart fellowship with God deeper than anything that can be put into human language, absolute sacrifice without a murmur but with joy utter and selfless devotion, the breaking of her life, the pouring out of her life, the wasting of her life, the lavishing of her life on him. In her action, she summed up the heart of the matter concerning service, deliberately broken, 
deliberately poured out, deliberately wasted on him. There was nothing mechanical, clinical, cold here. None of that harsh, metallic sound in so much of our service. No cool calculation of duty or service. No careful weighing the pros and the cons or measuring of advantages to be gained or reward to be obtained. No horror of waste. It was the prodigality of utter devotion. Those cramped, narrow hearts that can weigh out exactly how far they will go with the Lord thus far and no further, who can somehow almost gauge exactly what they think they will gain by service rendered to God, cannot understand the prodigality of devotion. Only hearts that know what it is to love understand its prodigal. The word prodigal means recklessly wasteful. And that's the one thing about love that we can say. It is prodigal. Real love is prodigal. It never hesitates. It never sits down and thinks it all out in a scientific analysis. It gives. It responds, it reacts. Hers was the prodigality of utter devotion. Judas was no fool. He was shrewd. He had a hard-headed business mind. He knew very well what this was. And he named it by the only word he could. Prodigal. Waste. The word must have gone like an arrow into our heart. The poor could have been cared for. Homes could have been built. Food could have been stuffed down them. Soup kitchens could have been opened all over the place. The spontaneous outflow of Devotion was checked for a moment, no doubt. She had entered into something which is divine in its origin and nature. Wasted, poured out, irrevocably given, irretrievably lost. Broken over him, poured out on him wasted for him. Such is true service. We see it in Mary. We see it above all in Christ. 
his whole life thus far, his whole ministry and service, as we have seen it in this gospel of Mark, has been the prodigal giving of absolute love and compassion. No trade union hours, no clinical hours here, no, as it were, careful working out of how to do it and when to do it. Day and night, year by year, broken that others might be made whole, poured out that others might be filled, wasted that others might become precious. And at the very point when all that was to be summed up in the breaking of the cross, the pouring out of Calvary, the being given irrevocably for to us and for us, Mary touched his heart and entered into the fellowship of his suffering. The, the servant of the Lord and a servant Now, I suppose most of you, I trust, have met with the Lord Jesus today. I hope most of you have spent some moments, sometime during this day, in which you have talked with him and met with him. But let me tell you, you can spend an hour in prayer and not really meet. Not that we're against quiet time, don't get that. We're all for it. But uh, that's not this kind of meeting. This kind of meeting is when you have given all. And the one who has given all meets you. The servant of the Lord and a servant of the Lord met. And for a moment in time, were absolutely one. Of course, it was going to take all of a Calvary and all of a Pentecost to really make that union effective. But how wonderful that even before Calvary and before Pentecost, here was one disciple out of all the thousand who met the Lord in the deepest way of all. In this, Mary becomes a picture for all time of what God means by service. Yes, indeed, the kind of service God would produce through the gospel. Now will you note here what the Lord Jesus said? Truly I say to you, verse 9, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Or, as it's put in the older version, I think better, in a better way, wheresoever the gospel shall be preached throughout the whole world, world, that also which this woman hath done shall be spoken of for a memorial of her. Surely that's what Christ meant when he linked Mary's name with the preaching of the gospel in the whole world. This dear soul from some little village outside Jerusalem her name was to be linked with the preaching of the gospel in every clime, in every nation, in every part of this world, at every stage of the age. 
wherever the gospel would be preached with all its mighty significance and power, Mary's action would stand beside it as a memorial. The two would go together, the preaching of the good news and the kind of character and service that gospel must produce. Now let me say something here. God is not interested in preaching as something in itself. He is interested in what that preaching must produce. He is not interested in words or outlines or sermons entertaining congregations by their content or soundness or brilliance. He is interested in the word producing conformity to the image of his son. That's why Mary's name is linked with the preaching of the gospel wherever it will be preached in the whole world. It's as if God is saying, I'm not interested in anything else but this kind of character. I am not interested in any other result from the preaching of the gospel than this kind of result. Nothing less interests God. Anything less has failed. It is not the gospel preached in demonstration of the spirit and of power. Perhaps by contrast, we see this matter of service in closing even more clearly in the disciples' reaction to Mary. Verse 4. Why was this ointment thus wasted? Why was this ointment thus wasted? To them, Mary's action had no significance at all. They'd been with the Lord for three years, slept with him, worked with him, prayed with him, gone out in his name, but for them, Mary's action had no significance at all. It was neither service nor fellowship with Christ in their estimation. It was a stupid, impulsive and utterly wasteful act. It could have been much more usefully spent on the poor. They left Mary in no doubt as to their feelings. It says they were indignant at her. And then it says they reproached her. And the Lord says, why do you make trouble for her? Those were his words. Why do you make trouble for her? Leave her alone. Why do you make trouble for her? If ever they exposed themselves, it was them. Their indignation, their criticism, their censuring of her, all seemed so right, so correct, so well-founded. 
Think of it yourself. If someone had done this, a thousand pounds wasted in a single moment upon whoever it was, even the Lord himself, I'm quite sure in this company there would be quite a few who would say, I don't agree with that. I don't agree with that. Even on our Lord, he wouldn't have wanted it. He wouldn't have wanted it. Of course, we can say that when we have no vision, when we have no understanding. They had not realized what he was about to do. They were utterly wrong. Not just a little wrong, they were utterly wrong. How wrong can you be? Unfortunately, their criticism is as much a memorial as Mary. And whenever Mary's name is remembered, and her act, we remember the disciples and their reaction. Negative and destructive criticism is always a determining factor in separating the precious from the vile and the wheat from the chaff. People often say, don't you think we should stamp out criticism? Oh, it would be a wonderful thing if we could. Murmuring, poison. But in some strange way, God uses it. There must be factions among you, said the Apostle Paul, for the approved of God to be made manifest. There is nothing like negative and destructive criticism for sorting out the saints. It's interesting to note that John says it was Judas who spoke in John 12. Furthermore, he adds this illuminating comment that he did not care for the poor, but he looked after the treasury, and he was a thief. That shows the origin of his so legitimate criticism. He had no care for three, one thousand pounds to be spent on feeding the poor. What he wanted to do was get his avaricious hands on the cash. But that's where it start, started, according to John. Now Mark, in Mark 14 and verse 4, tells us some of the disciples were indig had indignation. Matthew, in Matthew 26 and verse 8, tells us the disciples had indignation. So we find out Judas starts, some others get infected, and in the end the whole twelve were infected. What began with Judas quickly infected everyone. How true this is, so often, amongst the people of God. There is a raven in us all, which makes if it is not dealt with, a lot of noise and feeds on dead flesh. But what we need is not a raven. It has never symbolized God. We need the dove. Don't forget that. Well, in closing, what can we say? If Mary regretted for a moment her action, under the sheer pressure of the other's displeasure and anger. 
If she hesitated for a moment, with doubts flooding in, in the face of seemingly well-founded criticism, she must surely be eternally thankful that she did what she did. For she alone of all the disciples became the first fruit of what was to be produced in many others down through this age. Quite unconsciously, unwittingly, she raised for herself, through her sacrificial giving, her outpoured devotion, her selfless service, a memorial as timeless as the gospel. Now we close, but may I ask you a question? <coughs> what kind of service is yours? False or true? Who will you follow? Judas or Mary? The establishment? or Mary, the others, or Mary. What kind of service would you choose? Would you have the cross or the silver? Would you have the titles, the names, the positions, the reputation? Or would you make yourself of no reputation and humble yourself? What will you have? What will you choose? Will you choose Christ or self? Shall we pray? And now, Lord, we pray together in thy grace and in thy mercy that thou wilt bring every one of us, Lord, to that place where we're ready for thy dealings, however deep. Lord, may we be brought to the place where something of that character we've been speaking of this evening is in us by the Holy Spirit, something of that nature, something, Lord, of that service is at last seen and found in us by thy grace. Lord, thou hast said that whenever the gospel is preached, this thing that Mary has done shall be told as a memorial to her. Dear Lord, may we who preach the gospel have this character. May we who serve in any way have this character. May we who have been saved through that gospel have this character. We ask it in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ.